Hello, everyone. Welcome to my podcast, Travis's Best Life. I have just moved to Fishers, Indiana from Fort Wayne, Indiana area, and I'm living my best life. And this is my first podcast, and I have an awesome guest today. Uh, Dr. Stacey Lauderdale-Litton is with us from the Low Country Autism Foundation, um, and that is in Charleston, South Carolina. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So, yeah, uh, we'll go ahead. Stacey is also a BCBA doctorate level. So that's really cool. And we'll talk about that some later on, but go ahead and tell me about you and your foundation a little bit. Okay. Um, thanks for having me on Travis. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I work for the Low Country Autism Foundation um, doing family support services, which is basically families can call in and ask questions about anything from an initial evaluation um, to mental health support, um, resources in the community, um, job retention, job application process, um, pretty much anything that they need help with. That's what I can help them with and then I also focus on some research um, and advocacy in the area. That's very cool and you touched on uh, the mental health needs a little bit and I would like to talk about that just a little bit because I know with autism I'm on the spectrum myself and I know that there are comorbid mental health needs quite a bit um, so like what are some of the challenges that you face in um, helping someone with comorbid conditions in South Carolina? Um, I know there are challenges here in Indiana, but I assume they're pretty much similar across the country, but I just wanted to touch on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say one barrier that we have is the Medicaid reimbursement rates here in South Carolina. So there are only a handful of providers who are actually able to support um, the community who is on Medicaid. I would say that's one of the barriers. Another would be an understanding of autism and really what is needed in order to support someone with autism. Because like you said, Travis, that it looks, it's, you know, there are comorbidities with anxiety and depression um, with yeah. autism. Um, and then there's that social skill component too, where you wanna make sure when you're addressing, you know, a comorbid, um, you know, whether it's anxiety or depression, that you're also taking into account um, you know, what comes along with having autism. So you're making sure that you're really addressing the whole person. Um, so I would say professionals who really have an understanding of autism um, and, you know, the characteristics is, is, can be more difficult to find. Yes. And I feel it's extremely important that people understand that social deficits can be both autism related and mental health related. So if you're really anxious or you're really depressed, you're going to have a social skills deficit. Um, and I feel like it's important to know from an operational definition standpoint, uh, um, for those that aren't familiar with ABA, we'll talk a little bit about that, but operational definition is how we define behavior so we can all work on it together. Um, but like, I feel like it's important to know, is it is the deficit autism related or is it uh, mental health related? Because I feel like that helps us know how to address it and um, things like that, so. Absolutely. And I think too, one of the things like that you touched on, Travis, is I've spoken to some other adults and they, they will go say to a job or a social situation and it will be so stressful for them to be in that social situation that they will get then go home and that will kind of exacerbate the depression. Um, so some of these, you know, situations kind of work together in order, you know, it, it, it just leads to, you know, they're so intertwined that it's really hard to, to piece apart what's what. Absolutely. And I always think of uh, depression. There's two types of depression for me. There's a uh, chemical imbalance, which is a uh, natural depression, um, but there's also situational depression. Like you talked about, if you lose a job, you're going to go home and be depressed and sit on that couch and do nothing for a couple of weeks, you know, and things like that. So 
Um, obviously, we can treat depression with chemicals, um, medications, things like that, but also just working on social skills for me is the biggest way to treat depression because I love to be out working on social skills and things like that. So, super encouraging. Love it. Um, so, yeah, I thought I would give what I'm doing with my podcast is I'm kind of like asking them my guests some questions but I'm also giving my guests an opportunity to ask me some questions about autism so like if you have any questions for me um you're welcome to ask me anything at any time okay well I think one of my favorite things about talking to you is um how you are so introspective and can share your experiences with other people and um I know from the families that I talk to they're really interested in um adulthood and jobs Um, And so I know that's something that you've already kind of touched on a little bit and the social skill aspect of that, like, what do you think people need to know um, in order to be successful in the workplace if they have autism? Yeah, I really believe that people need to realize that it is a social disorder at heart. um, And so people are struggling to build these connections and um, struggling with social skills in general. So like when you're interacting with people at work, that's kind of like a job for us in itself is interacting with people um, as where typical people might find that natural so like we're not only trying to focus on learning how to do our job but we're trying to focus on learning how to socialize so that we can be appropriate at work and things like that so we've kind of got two things going on um and also one of the things that i've really been touching on a lot lately is what i call the emotional sensory overload um we often think of like sensory overload in terms of physical senses like taste touch feel etc um but i feel like there's also an emotional component to that for example where i um say my friend's having a bad day i feel like they're having a really bad day and i pick up on that like more intently so sometimes i pick up on my friend's emotions more than they have their own emotions um so like for example i had a friend whose father passed away and i was like wanting to send her flowers like every single day for like two weeks and like wanted to make dinner for her like every single day for two weeks and like just like overkill you know like over the top so my emotional response was like way overwhelming to what she was feeling um, and what I should be doing. And when my emotional response is out of context, I talk about social context a lot, but when my emotional response is out of context with her emotions, then my social response, like the buying the flowers or like cooking dinner is gonna be out of context with what it should be as well. Mm-hmm. So like we're constantly th- dealing with social context and things like that and um, understanding the social thinking aspect of it as well very important what do you think the best way is to teach that um i like to use i've been using like writing myself like social stories so for example like imagine there being like 10 levels of happiness or sad 10 levels of sadness for that example of a friend's father passing away so like level 10 is like the most sad and level one is like the least sad um and she might be at like level six but in my brain, I'm very black and white, so I can only recognize level 10 or level one. Um, and so like, if I come in at level 10 and she's at level six, I'm gonna be over the top. So like, I need like a social story to help me explain what level six is, because I can visualize level one and I can visualize level 10, but I just need like social stories for levels two through nine so that I can have a visual image. Like I think in pictures, like typical Brandon. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I can have a visual image of like what the gray area is, then I'm more likely to be able to comprehend it and understand it. And then once we have that visual image, naturally my social response might be a little bit more appropriate, but we might also have to work with me on like social skills to match those different levels as well. Mm-hmm. So. Did you say you wrote them? 
I have been starting to, yes, I'm starting to write them, so. Very cool, what which, what have you written them about? Um, just like, uh, for example, like I, I've been looking at different images of people's faces for like happiness mm -hmm. and frowns and like imagining like, well, this face might mean they're like a level one, this face might mean they're at level five, this face might mean they're at level seven or level eight. Mm -hmm. And then like writing like a social story to be like, this is what they might be feeling if they're at that level. So like say someone's dog is sick. I wrote a social story about their dog being sick and why they might be feeling at level four. And then like kind of like matching social skills, like write about social skills that go with that to kind of like interact with them, how you would comfort them and things like that. So I'm really working hard to learn like social boundaries. And so I'm practicing the social stories that I'm making up to kind of help me with these boundaries and learning how to navigate social relationships. Are you finding it difficult to write the social stories? Are you doing it by yourself? Are you having somebody help you? Yeah, I've been doing it by myself. Um, and it is difficult because I don't have, because I'm so black and white, it's hard for me to imagine the grayness of it. Um, and I tend to do like, I tend to do like what we do um, overgeneralize. We'll talk about ABA for a little bit, overgeneralize. So like something might be a level five, but my response, I overgeneralize my response to like level 10. So like I generalize up to level 10 or I generalize down to level one because it's always black or white. Um, and so like I have a hard time generalizing to level six um, or level four. Um, and so my stories are very like rigid because they're very black or white so far. I'm trying to bring them down to where they're in between in the gray area. You know, and I, I do have to say that this is something that a lot of people struggle with <laughs> is, you know, understanding how somebody else is feeling if you haven't also experienced that yourself. Um, so, I mean, it can be very hard um, right. to, be, to be able to do that. It's kind of like what we call the term mind blindness a little bit. If you don't understand what somebody else is feeling, um, right. putting yourself in their shoes is very difficult. Yep. Yep. I agree. Well, that's very cool. I didn't know you were doing that. Yeah, I just started doing that the past couple weeks, actually. So it's pretty exciting. Um, so yeah, why don't you uh, take a minute and tell me a couple of things that are coming up for your foundation, the Low Country Autism Foundation. Okay. A couple of events that you guys have going on. We can talk about those a little bit. Sure. Um, so we just had a really big fundraiser um, and it was at the Daniel Island Club in Charleston. And we raised funds in order to be able to offer free programming. So one of the things that we offer, for example, is free swim lessons um, okay. so um, and free music therapy. So these are just supplementary services, not necessarily focusing on evidence-based practices when we're offering these supplementary services, um, but it's just ways for individuals with autism and their families to be able to go into the community and, um, you know, access services and meet each other. Um, we also try to meet the needs of everyone in the family. So we have a dad support group. Um, we also do something called Laugh on the Wild Side, um, where it's a dad and then an individual with autism and they'll do things like kayaking or, I'm so sorry, my dog is going crazy. That's all right. <laughs> no problem. Um, and, um, and so we, we, we also offer free yoga for families. Um, so raising money in order to be able to offer those services. Um, upcoming in April, we have something called Ales for Autism, which is in Bluffton, South Carolina. And um, that is to raise money for services in that area because it's about two hours from here. Um, and it's a golf tournament and fundraiser as well. 
Okay, that's pretty cool. Very exciting. It's good to be coming out of some of this COVID lockdown so that we can uh, start doing some social events again, social gatherings. And that what I find people are really missing the most is the opportunity to socialize, meet other people, talk to each other, and especially families who have had an individual diagnosed over this last two-year period, they haven't really had the opportunity to be able to uh, meet other families. Absolutely. I was curious about that, actually. Um, have you noticed, have families noticed, in your opinion, is it harder to get a diagnosis now during COVID than it was before COVID? Um, how is that? Is there a longer wait list now? How is that going on? Yes, it is much more difficult and there's actually a huge wait list now. So we have found that because they had to stop with the diagnostic process that it's much more difficult now. Interesting. And, and we know how important that delay, that delay is going to hinder us in our growth. So I was curious um, what you would say to a Say you've got a parent who's got a new child, newly diagnosed, and they're considering ABA therapy, but they're getting all these different feedbacks from like autistic adults and stuff like that who are kind of negative about ABA. Um, so what would you say like to help convince someone um, ABA is person-centered and like how it really can help teach social skills and self-advocacy and things like that? What's your advice to new, newly parents, new parents who are, have a kid who's newly diagnosed? I am very glad that you asked that. Um, I would definitely say ABA is the gold standard um, in terms of autism intervention. And I would encourage families to go meet with an organization and, and talk to them about the needs of their family because many times um, the problem behaviors or even communication can be addressed utilizing ABA. And there's so many different interventions that are based on the science of ABA. So ABA being the umbrella, and all of these different interventions going underneath the umbrella. Um, so I would just say you need to try it for yourself. Everyone's experiences are different, but if you get a good team and people who understand your needs, your family's needs, your child's needs, you really are going to be able to increase the quality of life of the whole family. And there are so many different interventions that fall under this umbrella um, that there is something to address each behavior that you really wanna focus on. Absolutely. And I always find it fascinating that I think some people think that um, ABA is like the science of autism because they think it's like just for autism, but it's really the science of behavior, right? Um, we're studying behavior, we're not studying autism. Um, it just happens to work well with kids who are have some challenges socially. Um, now, I, I was talking to a parent um, a couple of days ago, and the, one of the reasons why they were not so sure about ABA was because... They said, well, it only focuses on the immediate antecedent. Um, so like what the event that, what, what triggers meltdown is the event right before the meltdown. And a lot of times we know, good ABA knows that that's not always true. It could be something that happened two days ago or like, you know, a week ago that triggers the meltdown. So like I had a parent, I was trying to convince them that a good ABA therapists actually care about the sequence of events leading up to the meltdown as opposed to just the immediate antecedent. Um, it was a fascinating conversation. Well, I also think the important thing to, to consider also is that good ABA not only focuses on the antecedent, but also focuses on the consequent and then focuses on the teaching of new behavior. So I think it's really a combination of what's happening before, what's happening after, and then what you can do to teach new behaviors in order to be able to control for the outcomes. Yeah, and it's also important, I think, to understand the MO, the motivation behind 
behavior as well. Um, so I always am fascinated by that. Um, good ABA really cares about the fourth term of the contingency, um, I feel like, and that's very important to me um, as a person with autism. Because um, it's always nice to care to know that someone cares why you're doing this, as opposed to just trying to eliminate the behavior or change you, you know, stop the behavior from happening. So, yeah. Um, now I was thinking back to our conversation we had a couple of months ago. Because um, I've known you for a while now, I've spoken in some of your classes. Um, so you teach at the college level, I and do. do I remember, if I remember correctly, um, you're you're having a sabbatical coming up. Is that right? I do. I'm very excited. I bet, I bet. So have you thought any further about what you're going to do like during your sabbatical study-wise? Or um... Yes. So what I would really like to do, there's a couple of things that I'm going to do in order to help prep for the sabbatical. One is um, I, wa I want to get parents and individuals with autism, I want to get their um, thoughts on sex education. Because okay. I think that's something that's extremely important. And I think that it's something that we need to start touching on, you know, when individuals are very young um, so that we can make sure that we're creating safe spaces and understanding circles of friendship and things like that. So I, I'm going to send out a survey that's going to ask people's opinions of information that they would like to learn or things that they're struggling with in order to start working on that. That's something I'm interested in. And the second thing is... Um, also, my research partner, Mary Haspel, and I um, just did a paper on some soft skills for um, jobs for individuals with autism. And I would really like to, here in Charleston, start an adult group in order to work on soft skills for employment. Um, okay. At least here in, in South Carolina, there are not that many opportunities to work on that. And I think it's a huge area of need. What do you think? Uh, yeah, it's definitely a big area of need. Um, so, like, I know I've been able to, um, for example, with job interviewing, I've been able to kind of, like, train myself how to do, like, job interviews, but then that's like, well, I can, I can get any job that I want because I can, I mastered the job interview process, but it's like, now I got to keep the job and I don't have the soft skills to be able to keep the job. Um, so I always end up, like, escaping because I'll end up, um, like, I'll end up, like, wanting to form a relationship with someone not knowing how to do that properly, I will just quit and like escape um, as opposed to trying to work through that and build through some of those boundaries and stuff like that. So um, I always find it fascinating because a lot of people tell me, you talked a little bit about, a little bit about sex education, but a lot of people tell me that um, you, there's this rule that you shouldn't date people that you work with. But yeah, it's funny because I know a lot of people that are married to someone that they were working with. So I find that neurotypicals are very fascinating because you're very good at making up these rules, but you're also very good at breaking your own rules and like That's going in that true. route as well. So That's very true. Yeah. I mean, with autism, we have to learn how to follow your rules and then we have to learn how to break the rules. So right. that's very challenging. It is very, and you know what, as you know, bringing that up, even if you said which rules could you break and how would you do it? I don't even know that I would be very good at explaining that. You right, know, right. it's difficult. Right. I think something that would be fascinating for your research would be um, to also include like a little diagram or a little um, part of your research where you ask neurotypical people to describe, well, what kind of things like sexuality wise make you uncomfortable? So like, for example, I've always had girls tell me that like, Travis, you're creepy nice, you're creepy. <laughs> but yeah, people have a hard time defining what that is. Right. Um, like. 
I've always wanted someone to be able to write me a book that tells me this is what you're doing that's creepy and making me feel this way. Mm-hmm. So maybe like a little survey, you know, like asking people well, what kind of things make you feel unsafe or make you feel creepy around someone, a new person. Right. Um, things like that would be very interesting, I think. That would be very interesting. You know, I wonder how you might do that and make sure, I mean, you brought up operationally defining earlier, right. which is making sure that we're all seeing the behavior the same way and defining it the same way. I found that that's something that's really difficult for people. So like you were saying, they might call it creepy, but they can't necessarily operationally define what creepy is. Right. Um, so I wonder how we could get a list of things maybe for people to choose from that are already operationally defined so that we make sure that we're understanding what those things are because I might be able to say um, like if I'm out um, this creepy to me might have been someone staring me in the eyes for longer than 10 seconds or something like that that might make me feeling without looking away Um, and that would be a good operational definition but I find people really struggle with being able to express that yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think people are just uncomfortable talking about it because I think it really. When we start talking about creepy, I think it does fall into the sex education piece of it, um, and people are just really uncomfortable explaining. Like they would rather just tell you you're weird instead of like explaining why you're weird and things like that. So it's very fascinating to me um, that people operate that way and they can't explain it. Um, yep. Yep, that's true. And they also operate differently depending on how they feel about someone, right? So if they're really interested in someone, something that might seem creepy from one person is not creepy by that person because they feel a certain way, but then you have to be able to recognize those signs too. Right, it's all in the context of the situation. It really is. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, That's true. Well, and some of the soft skills that um, in terms of the workplace were like teamwork, networking, you know, mm-hmm. professionalism, problem solving, critical thinking, are these things that I know you've mentioned before that you have somebody, um, an ABA professional who you've worked with, have they touched on any of those things before? Yeah, we've worked, we started working on them a little bit now. Um, I, uh, I've just gotten to a bigger city where I've got more services now, which is really fascinating. Um, we're working on some soft skills and we are going to be looking at jobs and things like that. And, um, but I really am like focused on, um, I think it's funny because like, I love Peter Gerhardt. He tells a story about how he makes it a team effort at work. So he like, all of a sudden he had this kid one day with autism and it was like, everybody was walking up to him and giving him a high five. And he couldn't figure out why they were paying attention to him all of a sudden. But the employees turned it into like a coin machine, like a competition where it was like, who can get John to say hi to me back the most? Um, and that was really fascinating to me that they were engaging the coworkers. Um, and one of the things I think that we're going to start to see developing in the near future is people thoughts as I'm doing more trainings for employers. Um, because I mean, we're the best people to train the employer on how to interact with us and train our coworkers on how to interact with us and things like that. So I, um, I, I've put together some presentations for potential employers that I'm uh, going to be applying for positions with as well. So I'm very excited about that. Um, that would be yeah. a research study too. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I just think that like the little nuances, you know, like we talked about, I think you mentioned, I, I spoke to the Low Country Autism Foundation a couple weeks ago. I think you mentioned that you worked drive through at Wendy's as well. I did. Um, so like, there's just the, the constant, you know, you can talk to each other inside and people are always making jokes and like, 
when you talk about sexual education, there's always all those sexual innuendos going on and things like that. And it's like, as a person with autism, you want to feel included in that. And you want to like joke around with everybody, but you don't know how. And that's a very touchy the sexual and windows. That's a very touchy subject to say the wrong thing on um, and things like that. So we need to make people with autism more comfortable. Um, and it's interesting how everything goes together. So like the, the sexuality education also goes together with the job skills, the soft job skills, because um, you really do have to be educated sexually to be able to work in a work setting, unfortunately, because um, there's a lot of those many windows going on. And, things like that so it's interesting how it all folds in together and works together it really it really does and you know i think too knowing what's available in order to teach those skills and learning from somebody who has autism the best way in order to teach those skills is really really important yeah definitely it's i think it's all about like it's a very great concept so we have to figure out how to teach like the middle ground behaviors um all or, that, all or nothing thinking gets us into trouble sometimes and um, we just have to work on like I don't know how to explain it but there's there's got to be a way to work on operationally defining the gray area the gray content um, and I think we, we put so much focus on like yes or no or like you know choices but we, 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 we yes two choices like you can do this or you can do that but the problem with that is in life there's actually thousands of choices to make at the same time and it's really hard to design a person-centered program that focuses on all those choices because um, we, we just have limited amount of time with the person. That's absolutely true. And, you know, being able to determine what all of those choices are, because I think sometimes all of those choices move through your mind so quickly that some of them you don't even realize, you know, would come to mind because they're just, you're filing through them so quickly that you don't even realize that that might have right. been a choice that you just passed right by. Right, and I know, I think uh, my understanding is that as neurotypical, you kind of make those choices nonchalantly without even really thinking about it. Um, as for some of our thoughts, it might sit there and process that choice for like a minute or two um, to try and make that decision. So it's very fascinating. So, can I ask you another quick question? And this is a little bit off the topic, what we were just talking about. Yeah, um, for sure. I do the police trainings here. Um, and basically they're wanting information if they come into contact with someone with autism in the community, what are the things that they should know? If you were to tell them like five things that they think they should know that would help me train them and help them in the community, what do you think those might be? Yeah, um, I encourage them to get peers involved. So like we're doing a program here in Indiana called 98. Well, 988 is a national thing now. Um, it's uh, going to be like the mental health helpline. But in Indiana, I'm on the committee. We're helping implement that. And um, one of the things that I'm encouraging is that we get peers involved. And like so, adults with autism maybe go out with the police officers into the community to help bridge that interaction. Um, but the, the first thing that I think the police should also know with autism is there's going to be comorbid mental health conditions involved. Um, and someone with autism, they have to also know, the second thing is that it's a very wide spectrum. So if someone with Asperger's is gonna respond completely different than someone who's nonverbal. Um, and also people with autism don't necessarily know that they should just stop and put their hands up without being told um, right. or asked to. And it's better to ask us than to tell us. Um, so like the command stuff isn't really gonna be very effective because we're gonna be so anxious, we're not gonna to respond to that. Um, and then just focused on like, um, not touching, obviously, not getting too close. Um, 
sensory overload, things like that. Um, and then understanding that when they do ask us questions, there's a great scene. There's a movie called Adam. It's about a guy with Asperger's syndrome. I don't know if you've seen it yet. Um, it's from 2009, but it's a really great scene. He's at a park and he's like watching the children play in the park. Um, and the kids uh, all they're playing and the police come up because there's this guy staring at these kids at the park and they ask him well what are you doing and he says i'm watching the children and obviously like neurotypical wise like like they they interpret that they think they know what he's doing sure um, and he's really just watching the children and observing kind of like trying to learn how to interact and things like that but they think he's a predator because he says i'm watching the children so like, don't take everything that we say literally and try to investigate the situation a little bit more to find out what's going on um, and things like that. So that's very that's important as well. What, um, what about the use of visuals? Yes, visual aid would be very, very helpful. So like, and, and do, it, do it within the context too. So like, don't just go to a training and train me on the visual aid, but like take visual, if you're on a crisis call, take visual aids with you. And like, this is like, explain the diagram, explain this is what we're trying to get you to do and draw the visual out and maybe make it into like a social story um, within the right context of the situation. So that's very important as well. Thank you. I'm always looking for new things and new information to provide them because they really do want to help and do the right thing. Um, oh yeah. But sometimes they're just not sure, especially with what you said with the mental health and autism. Sometimes they're if they don't know the person has autism, they you know right. they I, they always ask me, how am I supposed to know if they're not able to tell me? And and another thing that I'm encouraging as well is and I feel this is very important is that because um, I've been on the receiving end of some crisis calls, you know, where I've been the one that was they were coming out to deal with um, or help, and I think it's very important that the city police officers are getting the exact same training as the county police officers. Because as someone with autism, if you approach me as a county officer completely differently than what your city officer approaches me, I'm gonna have a meltdown because you're, you're doing something way different. So it's very important that the city and county and state troopers all have the same crisis intervention training as well. Awesome, so the continuity is a really important piece. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm going to use that tomorrow. I have a training tomorrow and I'm actually going to look at that movie and see if I can't find it. Oh yeah. That sounds pretty that. cool. Like, use that yeah. as a visual if you can. Show the clip. Yeah. I, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, that would be a great addition to the presentation yeah. so they can actually see an example. Definitely. Definitely. Um, all right, Stacy. Well, did you have any other questions for me? No, Travis, it's always such a delight to talk to you. I'm sorry about the crazy dog in the vacuum. I know that did not <laughs> help the middle of our uh, podcast here, but I am so grateful that you asked me to come um, on your inaugural podcast. Yes, this is my very first show, so I'm excited about that. Um, and it's always good to talk to you and have you on the show, and I look forward to uh, continuing to work with you and further educate people about autism. Absolutely, Travis. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Bye. Bye now.